Campsite Media. The last time most people in my family saw Presh was at my cousin's wedding, the one I keep talking about, with that luncheon and the argument over Richard Pang. That luncheon had been for out-of-town guests, like Diana Hay. Last time we saw her, actually, was um, the night before we left from the wedding when we were there, which was just a couple of weeks before she died, I guess. Diana drove in from North Carolina. She'd married into our family in the late 1990s, so she'd only met Presh a few times before that night. It's a big reason I find her perspective so interesting. She wasn't familiar with much of the family history or drama, but she picked up on the dynamics real quick. I mean, she never got off that dance floor out there. And I remember uh, I sat down. Diana needed a rest and took a seat next to Precious' sister, Charlotte. She goes, I don't know when she became such a dancer. I was the one that was a dancer. <laughs> when we were young, you know, I was known for my dance, which was kind of, you know, you kind of picked up that uh, sibling rivalry. You know? <laughs> After Presh died, my dad actually found a receipt for the shoes she'd worn at this wedding. On it, she'd written, danced all night. Diana spent a lot of time with Richard on that trip. Diana's a writer, and she'd wanted to do some research into the big 1927 Greenville flood, the one Richard had memorialized with an entire festival. So what better person than him to give her a Greenville history tour? By the time the wedding rolled around that Saturday, Richard was still chatting up Diana. I knew it was odd. He was very nice to me. And I couldn't understand why everybody else, it came off to me as, why are they acting so rudely towards him? That they didn't like him, they didn't want anything to do with him. It was y'all's family was standing over there, and y'all were looking, and we were both aware we were being talked about. Well, I found out later what it was, was they were feeling sorry and trying to figure out how to rescue me, kind of thing. She says Richard starts explaining. And left me with the impression that they all thought they were better than him, and... You know, and he started expressing all this jealousy stuff. And it went on for a couple of minutes. And then he told me, he said, well, it's not going to be like this forever. He goes, here very soon, things are going to completely turn around. And at the time, I felt, then I left. I felt really creepy about the whole thing at the time. It was very uncomfortable. Richard says he doesn't remember this and says he'd never say anything negative about the family. I will never forget When we got the phone call that she'd been killed, immediately, my first thing I said, first words out of my mouth when we hung up the phone was, he did it. And I said, oh my God, I think that's what he was thinking. I'd heard a lot of stories like this over the years, and I'd soon hear many others. But have these stories stuck around for 20 years because they're clues or because they're good stories? Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. This is Witnessed, Devil in the Ditch, Episode 5, The Shade Tree. I'm Larison Campbell. I went to Mississippi for a couple of weeks back in July. I'd baked in a little family time in Jackson. I had my six-year-old twins with me, and my parents take their role as free childcare just as seriously as Presh did. It was also an opportunity to get back to Greenville. This is actually the same trip where I went door knocking, looking for the people police had questioned. I spoke to a lot of other people then, too. 
But I wanted to use this whole trip to get a better handle on the dueling theories about who could have killed Presh. Everyone seemed to have their own ideas about what happened. When I'd come to town back in the spring, I talked to Richard and Presh's sister, Charlotte. And Charlotte shared her theory that Presh must have been killed by one of the kids she knew from her work at the juvenile detention center. As far as I could tell, none of the people police interviewed about Presh's murder had fit that profile. But I wanted to better understand the kind of relationship Presh had with the kids she'd worked with there for so many years. And I wanted to understand why Charlotte stuck to this theory for two decades. I had a few people on the docket to interview. Another investigator, family, a youth court judge who'd worked with Presh. And, of course, Charlotte. But in the middle of lunch on the day I was supposed to leave my kids with my parents and drive up to Greenville, I got this voicemail. Larson, happy 4th of July. My cousin Richard. Mama fell this morning and broke her hip. She's going to have surgery tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock for a partial hip replacement. And the surgery should last about an hour. So keep her in your prayers. And Mom and I wanted you to know, since you were going to be coming to Greenville, that your plans for meeting her at the house are now gone because she'll be in the hospital recovering from her surgery. Just one of life's tough breaks, so to speak. Surgery that's risky for someone in their 80s on a woman who's 101? But Charlotte is a survivor, literally. Two rounds of cancer, double pneumonia. I can remember twice looking for flights home to say goodbye, only to have her rebound healthy as ever before I could book them. I recently asked her the secret to longevity, and she told me she'd never had a drink in her life, which means I'm probably not going to live to 101. At any rate, this trip wasn't going to be a good time for an interview, but it did open up space to talk with another family member, Greg, who knew Precious' work at the juvenile detention center better than almost anyone because that's where he'd met her. Greg was Precious' foster son. He came into our family in the mid-'80s when the rest of her kids had been out of the house for at least a decade. I was six years old when Presh told us to come by the house one Saturday to meet him. He was 16. Lanky, polite, with a sandy brown mullet. Greg instantly vibed with Presh's offbeat sense of humor and her willingness to go all out, 100%, on everything she did. There was a Halloween where I had to be her hunchback assistant, and— um, she would come to the door. She had this white flowing robe and this weird wig and like fake blood on it. And she would come to the door and pull it and say, who dares disturb my slumber? I remember it being a child's Casper the Ghost mask, which was so scary. Uh, and it was that. like bent and uh-huh. like misshapen. <laughs> I don't think she understood how Utterly terrifying, the whole effect was. I mean, or, but if she had, she would have Children still gone through cried. with it. Presh had met Greg at the juvenile detention center where she tutored. But unlike most kids there, Greg hadn't broken any laws. He just didn't have any other place in the state of Mississippi to go. My life from the very beginning was chaotic. Greg was sent to a series of foster and group homes. 
He ran away from each one until he ended up in Greenville's detention center, where running away wasn't an option because, you know, it's jail for kids. He met Presh on his very first day there, Christmas Eve. Uh, I guess I got her to laughing about something. I can't remember what. A few weeks later, Presh told him to pack. He shoved what little he had into two trash bags, and Presh brought him to her house, which became his home. He stayed the rest of high school. I mean, what made you not run away from Presh and Dee's house? They were the first people who were kind to me. She even told me one morning before going to school, she said, I was frustrated about something. She said, Greg, she said, I just want you to know that I love you. She said that, and that's not something Presh says very often. Um, And, uh, you know, that really, like, got me. I didn't even know how to answer. And all of this time, Presh folded teenage Greg into her life, just like she did the rest of us. But she gave him room to be himself. I would get these cassettes of, like, Judas Priest, Slayer, like, The Clash. You know, it was like punk and metal. And she would drive me to school, and I would pop one of those cassettes in, and the music would start pounding, and her fist would be flailing as she held on to the steering wheel. This surprised me. Presh was a total prude, especially about music. But she seemed to know that Greg needed a level of grace her own kids and grandkids did not. And she brought that grace to her work with kids in the group home and juvenile detention center. When Greg would come home from college and later when he was serving overseas, Presh would sometimes bring him back to the center, I think as inspiration. So Greg spent a lot of time there with Presh. She had set up this school inside the detention center, which she called the Greg School and named after me, yours truly. And sometimes people like these educators would come to see the Greg School and they thought Greg was some method of teaching, like the Greg approach or whatever. Um, And uh, (laughs) I really think the kids liked her because, you know, she was not, she was not there to judge them. You know, if hers was the only smiling face they were gonna see, then she was going to have to provide that smiling face. At any given time, Presh had her hand in like a dozen community projects. But for the last 15 years of her life, the Gregg School got her most consistent attention. Presh had learned that kids didn't have access to formal education when they were in the detention center. In fact, they'd get marked absent from school during their sentence. It started out as a pretty ragtag operation. During one spring break, I found myself teaching English Lit, But the instruction became more formalized with the help of a new youth court judge, Vernita Johnson. While they were in detention, they needed to be educated. Judge Johnson is still the youth court judge today. I have been in this position for 23 and a half years. And believe it or not, I'm going to run for it again. Since we spoke, she won re-election by a landslide. She'd met Presh at the detention center back before she'd been elected the first time. And I was telling her that I was going to run for the office and telling her about myself. And I already knew exactly who I was. She already had my history and just briefly told me about myself. And she went on to talk with me about the school for the, for the juveniles. It was her dream that should I be elected to make sure it became a full-time school. It actually did. And four years after Presh died, 
Judge Johnson tells me the state passed legislation that she and Pressure worked on, mandating that every juvenile detention center in Mississippi have its own alternative school attached. She would have loved that. But I was curious about more than just Pressure's relationship with the school. Given Charlotte's theory that a student from the juvenile detention center had angrily murdered Presh because she scolded him, I wanted to understand Presh's relationship with the kids she tutored. This was something both Judge Johnson and Greg had seen up close. Did she ever get stern with the kids? She would get a little stern with the children, but, you know, and maybe raise her, her voice a little bit, but that was it. I explained Charlotte's theory to Greg for his take, that it must have been a kid Presh had worked with from the detention center, despite having no evidence of that. Because Presh would often get in their faces and wag her finger. That is not true. That is not how Presh treated anybody in the youth court. She never wagged her finger in my face. And I used to irritate her. Um, So, yeah, she would say, I'm going to wring the neck. But um, no, this business about her getting in somebody's face and wagging, that is just, that is not her. How do they even know? They never saw her interact with juvenile detainees. They weren't interested in that. But it's still the story Charlotte's held on to. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. I've had others over the years, but that's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, host of the new season of WBUR's Last Scene. I'm digging into what happened at Harvard Medical School, how body parts were stolen and sold across the country. In this five-part series, I spend time with those who buy and sell human remains. And I ask, how should we treat the dead? Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. There's this local story, legend actually, I heard growing up. The story goes that in the late 1940s, just outside of Greenville, society matron Ruth Thompson Dickens lived a few doors down from her elderly mother. Unfortunately, her mother was tough as nails, especially on Ruth. Ruth was at the end of her rope. So one day, she picked up the garden shears she'd been using to prune the rose bushes and hacked her mother to death. Off she went to Parchman, Mississippi's notorious state penitentiary. But don't worry, Ruth didn't lose her society status. As the legend goes, the governor granted her furlough so she could leave prison and attend her daughter's debutante ball. My mom's favorite part of the story was that every Sunday, Ruth's friends in the garden club took turns bringing her lunch with linens and fine china so she could dine in the manner to which she'd become accustomed. That's likely a myth. True or not, people love to talk about Ruth. During Ruth's time in prison, newspapers breathlessly reported on her health, even her weight. Six years into this circus, the governor granted Ruth an indefinite suspension of her sentence 
and she was sent home, where she resumed her role teaching Sunday school at the Baptist church. After all, who could really blame her? Everyone knew her mother was a total pill. In this telling, Ruth is our Lizzie Borden, with feminine garden shears instead of a brutal axe. And the comedic twist, that in Delta society, it's perfectly acceptable to kill members of your own family. As long as you were born into the right one. What I didn't hear about until I dug into the newspaper archives was the part where Ruth had tried to blame a black man, one she could neither name nor even describe. And that off this week tip, police had launched a massive manhunt, tailing innocent black men, interviewing all the gardeners who worked nearby. Even after her conviction, support for Ruth remained strong enough that while she was in prison, police continued to investigate black men on her behalf. After all, she was a white woman, the Southern gentry's favorite symbol of virtue. So when I hear a theory like Charlotte's, that a kid from the detention center who she can't name or identify must have killed Presh, the parallels are impossible to miss. There are countless stories like this, especially in the South. And 70 years wasn't that long ago. Here's Judge Johnson. Hmm. Let's just say that our, our conviction rate or our delinquency rate does not match the community. Traditionally, white people get more of the reasonable doubt. It starts with law enforcement. An example, and this is one that that has bothered me and still bothers me. You can have a group of white kids in the mall parking lot at 10.30 at night, laughing, talking, uh, maybe drinking beer. And the police officer comes and says, okay, let's break it up, go home, takes the beer, pours it out, everybody leaves. You have a group of black kids in the mall at 10.30 at night drinking beer, and the police come. All right, break it up. Y'all going to jail. And what happens then? Like, what happens next to the kids, you know, who are sent home versus the kids who are sent to jail? Well, they're in the system now. They're in the system. Greg, Precious Foster's son, wasn't in the system. Even though he was sent to the juvenile detention center, his circumstances were different. Many of the other kids had families to go back to. Greg didn't. And the juvenile detention center was meant for kids who'd been arrested. And Greg hadn't. So it makes sense that he's the one kid Presh brought into her home. But there is another way he was different from many of the kids he was with. You know, she she brought you into her home, and, you know, there weren't a whole lot of other white kids at the detention center. Do you think it seems so—do you ever think about that? I have thought about it, and it I, I honestly think that if I weren't white, I wouldn't. It would have been—and it's not because— it, it would have just been too much social pressure. She would have never heard the end of it. I just think the social context would have been so difficult for them. Greg is probably right. People would have lost their minds. Precious neighborhood was all white in the 1980s, a neighborhood where 15 years later, on the day after Precious' murder, neighbors would still report Black men to the police for being seen walking around outside. 
which is a big reason Judge Johnson is skeptical that a kid from the center or any random black man would have been Precious Killer. I would not think it would be legitimate at all. First of all, the juveniles in the detention center would not even know how to find her. And back at that time, they would not know how to get into the area where she lived. I've debated this point a lot since she said it. Precious' neighborhood was in the center of Greenville. That is, the center of my Greenville. But Precious' neighborhood would have been just as unfamiliar to these kids as theirs had been to me. Still, Greg did tell me he remembered at least one kid Precious had mentored visiting the house. He would come by not too frequently, but once every couple of months or something, he would pop his head in and they would talk for a minute, and he always left with a little bit of cash. I remember one other kid who did some yard work but never came back. But to Judge Johnson's point, the kid probably would have stood out. Uh, You just did not have a lot of blacks going into the area where Miss Campbell lived. Actually, you know, the only time I went in the area was when I went to her home at her invitation to work on the grant. A young black male or black male period would stand out in that area. So it's not like a black male could just walk in there and quietly go into the house. That was not the way it was at that time. And even now, it's not that way. I just never thought it was a true robbery. If that were the case, then other things would have been taken from the house. Things that could easily be sold by a black male. Things such as TVs, uh, such as silver, or, or things that appeared to have value. There are a number of problems with Charlotte's theory of who killed her sister and why. The main one being that it's less an actual theory than simply a racist trope she decided to believe. It's a guess, nothing more. When I was a municipal judge in Hollandale, there was a big tree and a group of guys would sit under that tree. And they pretty much knew everything that went on in Hollandale. So I started to refer to them as the Shade Tree Group. They would come to court, I guess in small towns with nothing else to do, would come to court. And after court, they would come to me, Judge, you hit that right on the nail. Because let me tell you what's really going on. Or they would tell me, you missed that one. And uh, 95% of the time, they were right. Shade Tree knew what was going on. Most of the time, you can't prove it. But it's normally right. What if, when going back to my grandmother, what is the shade tree talk on that case? That I heard was that it was someone close to the family. The idea that the court of public opinion might be as accurate as, say, the courts isn't new, though it is surprising to hear it from a judge. Still, I'm skeptical of the shade tree, especially when it comes to my grandmother's murder. Sometimes stories persist, not because they're true, but because they're fascinating. And sometimes, like in this case, certain stories persist because police don't provide evidence or suspects. So rumor's all you have. 
Of course, skeptical or not, the shade tree is why I'm here. Because after Precious murder, as detectives hit dead ends, stories about Richard proliferated. Little things he did or said about Precious' death, interactions people had with him in the days after she was murdered. I ran many of these stories by Richard. I'm gonna include some here, along with his responses. Not because I think they paint a picture of his guilt. They don't. This is gossip distorted by two decades. But these stories do paint a picture of how Greenville's court of public opinion works. Like the one I heard from Amanda, the caterer who loves a gin cocktail and a good wedding crasher story. A day or two after Precious' murder, she and her husband dropped food off for Charlotte and Richard. We did not stay very long, but we visited with her for a short amount of time. She says Richard walked them out. And um, as he walked us out, he just totally out of the blue said, you know, my fingerprints are probably all over that house. I go over there all the time. Precious house. And it was not a prompted statement. It was not, we did not ask anything about the, I mean, we asked no questions. We had strictly gone to console your aunt and to offer a little supper. At the reception for Presh's funeral, Richard made one of my sisters cry when he called Presh, quote, stupid, for getting her sink clogged and for getting to lock her doors. During a sympathy visit to Charlotte the weekend that Presh died, a friend of hers told me she'd had to ask Richard to stop describing what had happened to his aunt. When I asked Richard about this, he told me his mother had told him everything she saw, and he just couldn't get it out of his head. Richard says he doesn't remember the fingerprints comment, but thinks it must have been made in a, quote, lighthearted way. Same with the comments about Presh being, quote, stupid. There's a pattern here, of course, which is Richard saying things that make people uncomfortable. It's not new. But without a murder accusation hanging over his head, would these kind of comments seem sinister? or just awkward. The police weren't oblivious to these rumors. They interviewed Richard and even Charlotte multiple times that summer. But as the official investigation slowed down, the stories kept circulating. Late one night, about four years after Presh died, a childhood friend who still lived in the Delta called me up. She was a little giddy. You'll never guess what I did today, she told me. I saw Richard at church, and I walked right up to him, pointed my finger in his face, and said, We all know what you did. Wait, what? You do? I remember asking her. Because I definitely don't. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. It's a standard rule in detective work that the first 48 hours after a murder are the most crucial time for a homicide investigation. For the first two days after Precious' murder, police told reporters that robbery was the primary motive. On day three, the chief of police said there was a possibility that Presh had known her killer. And at the end of that week, police brought Richard in for an interview. This was around the same time they were interviewing others for information. Richard's interview was about 30 minutes. Kelvin McKenzie, who was a homicide detective at that time with the Washington County Sheriff's Department, sat in on that interview. He told me he was brought in because the sheriff was friends with Presh and one of my lawyer cousins. They had talked, and they asked me. I was asked to come in and assist in the investigation. Remember, the murder was technically under the jurisdiction of Greenville Police. But because my grandmother had been so well-known... It was kind of high profile. I mean, it was a, who she was. The sheriff's department came in to assist. At this time, Ricky Spratlin, the Greenville Police detective who processed the scene, was very much in the camp of, it was likely a robbery, but we just don't have a suspect. As a reminder, here's what he said. I think whoever it was followed up in the house. And she was going to, I'll, I'll give you a few dollars. And wow, and that's when she dropped the purse. And, uh, and they got what they want, whatever they got. Kelvin remembers this. Initially, that's what we, th- it was looked at as a robbery. He tells me it took them some time to start looking at Richard. He was not the, the main conversation that initially. Um, that was after talking to some people that he came up in the conversation. From talking to people, interviewing people, we found out that they had had heated conversations. That is Richard and Presh. So it was a prevalent suspect because of that. I want to pause here to say that while Richard's name shows up frequently in the investigation documents my aunt collected, police never referred to him as a, quote, suspect. We really wanted clarification on this. What was Richard? but Greenville police declined to answer any of our questions about the investigation. Back when I went down to the police station, an officer there who had worked on the investigation referred to Richard as a person of interest, which means he could have information that leads police to a suspect or that he could turn into a suspect himself. Unfortunately, Sheriff's Detective McKenzie wasn't able to look through the file before our interview, so he doesn't remember all the details. It's the same issue we had with Greenville Police Detective Spratlin. But Mackenzie clearly remembers his theory on why Presh was murdered. He says Presh had been on Richard's case. About getting out of Mama's house, sponging off Mama. And uh, I think they got into it, had been into it several times before that day. And uh, that was the thought that that day that they had probably got into it again, that she had probably got in, got on him about it again. And... Uh, he uh, got upset about it and, and struck her. And um, 
the thought was he struck her with a candlestick holder that was in there. I don't remember anything being stolen. Everything that was in there was all silver. Why? Why? Why wouldn't you take that? If you were actually going to rob a house or steal something, you know, I think their theory was she come in and surprised them or whatever, stealing, but there was nothing missing. Um, I mean, if you if you kill somebody, would you then just be freaked out and leave without taking something, or would you then? Would you, if you went to the extent of killing somebody, would you walk out without anything? I don't know. Would you take I... the time to turn up the turn the purse upside down, but still not take anything? I mean. I actually don't know. I don't know what I would do in that but case. But if you were trying to stage a scene to look like a robbery or a burglary gone bad, then you would turn stuff upside down. Here's what I do know about the investigation into Richard. Greenville police interviewed Richard at least once down at the station, six days after Precious' murder. That week, they collected one pair of tennis shoes from him to compare against the two shoe prints they'd found at the scene. No matches. About three weeks after the murder, Richard and Charlotte let detectives search Richard's car and their house. Nothing connected him to the crime. Later, they'd collect his and Charlotte's DNA and fingerprints. Richard also voluntarily took two different polygraphs that summer. I think we did one first, and it was inclusive. And then we got him to do one, and it showed deception. This is true. A disclaimer, though. Lie detector tests aren't reliable enough to even be used in court. Investigators mainly use them as an intimidation tactic to pressure suspects to come clean, which is what McKenzie said he thought Richard was about to do during his second test, the one he failed. And he was just about to, to come to break, I think. And he stopped. And he'd just sit there for probably a minute. And he said, I'm ready to go. And he wouldn't say anything else after that. Richard remembers this a little differently. He said he was tired, he felt like he'd done his part, and just told the officers to take him home. This is just strictly years of, of doing what I did and the gut feeling that he was the one. I just never could prove it. Um, so it got to a point to where they wouldn't do anything. They, meaning the investigators. And... So it was kind of stalled. And I say they wasn't doing anything. I guess they had run out of all their leads or exhausted everything that they had. And I didn't have anything else to go with, so new things come up. Every day something else comes up and you have to move on. And it just came to a point to where it was a Greenville case. I mean, I had I had to move on to other things. Greenville case, meaning Greenville police, not the sheriff's department's case. Detective McKenzie also brings up another point that Ricky, the Greenville police detective, had told us about. That towel that had been placed over Presh's face? Well, to McKenzie, it's a signal that the killer didn't just know Presh, but possibly cared about her. He feels bad because he done it. And then he can't look at her. So you take a towel and you cover her face because you can't stand to look at her. I've been hearing this over and over. The towel over Precious' face was key. It meant her killer knew her. I reached out to a criminology and criminal justice professor at Florida State. She told me it is a common perception among investigators, though there aren't statistics to back it up. All evidence is either anecdotal or based on case studies. So it's a reasonable supposition, 
but it's not evidence that points to any particular person. We know the pool of people who cared about Presh was deep and wide. And none of the other evidence from the DNA to the shoe prints to eyewitness accounts from neighbors ever tied Richard to the murder scene. How common is it for somebody to commit a murder in somebody's house and leave no trace at all? To leave no trace? Well, if you go in, if you go in a house, you take something with you. And if you go in, you're going to leave something behind. That's always a common rule. From the interview transcript I have, detectives seem hung up on how he described his relationship with Presh. Richard said they had a loving relationship, and police kept challenging that. I asked Mackenzie why the theory that Richard killed Presh is the theory that resonates with him. I just, years of gut feeling and just, and talking to him. Richard's attitude and expressions, Mackenzie says. Remember, this isn't the official stance of the sheriff's department. It's just one detective's opinion as someone who worked on the case. I repeated this back to Richard. He told me, quote, these investigators, they need to concentrate on evidence and not presumptions. Their job is to operate in fact. He's telling inconsistent stories, so you talk to the family, the other family members. What kind of relationship did they have? And what was his alibi again? Well, he was at home. Well, who can, who can testify to that? Or who can, you know, give him an alibi? Well, his mama. Well, come find out his mama was at the grocery store next door somewhere else. She was gone 45 minutes. That brings us back to how long it took to walk down there and back. So, so was there sufficient time to go down there and back? Like I said, you put all this together. You piece it together. Since no one remembers seeing Richard's car leave his driveway, one theory is that Richard walked from his house to Presh's and back. Spratlin from the police department even timed the walk. It took me three minutes. It took me three minutes. And I, that was when I had to have a knee operation. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you had time, you know. But I was specifically told by family members that he did not walk. But, you know, he was fully cooperated. He did everything we asked, signed any consent that we asked. We took his shoes. We... Everything. Never, never once did he say, nah, y'all get out of here. I ain't. See, he wasn't totally against the idea that Richard could have done it. He just wasn't convinced. The evidence wasn't there. I always considered a dual system. It, it could have been, we could go with the family member or the, the nut just walking in up that, up that driveway. And as I'm talking to both detectives, I'm realizing they agree on most of the details, like the facts of the case. What they don't agree on is how to interpret what those facts mean. He never got mad at us. He never cussed us out. He never shoved the door in our faces or nothing. And I see him to this day. I know him now, but, you know, he, he'll speak. And it's just like, and it, it's like he's just, if he had anything to do with it, he's hiding it really well. I asked Mackenzie the same thing. Just real no emotion to him, really. Um, you know, you asked him a question, well, I don't know what you're talking about, or I didn't do it, or I wasn't there, you know. I don't have anything to do with it. But really, no emotion. What does that mean to you? The no emotion? Well, if you're accusing me of doing something, I'm probably going to get a little pissed or a little hostile, you know. Or 
at the very least, I'm going to be a little upset because I've lost a family member. He didn't have any of that. She's just no emotion. It's funny, Ricky Spratlin actually told us the exact opposite. He said he believed that because he was so calm and so emotionless that he believed that was a sign of innocence. Well, we people read things differently. Our interpretation of events says a lot about who we are. Kelvin McKenzie, the former detective with the Sheriff's Department, admitted as much to me. McKenzie is a white man who now lives in Madison, a mostly white suburb of the mostly black city of Jackson, Mississippi. Back in 2003, when he was a detective, Greenville was 70% black and segregated by race. And he told me that influenced how he did his job. We didn't abuse anybody, but we didn't take any crap off nobody, you know. Um, you went out and you policed the community and you worked with the community, community policing as they call it. They came up with a name for it. Well, that's, we've done that for years. You go out and you mingle with the people because I didn't have a crystal ball. You know, when I first started at Greenville, Gaddis parking lot. Remember where all the kids congregated out there, right? They're all wrong because they're, they're juveniles and they're drinking, you know, but I wasn't hauling them off to jail. I was building a rapport with them. And they learned one important deal, and you could ask them the golden rule. You don't lie to Mac. You lie to Mac, you go to jail. And when things would happen, I'd get a phone call. Something happened, I need to know something, I'd call one of them. And that's how I built, started building that deal. And over the years, you stop somebody for a little nickel bag, you pour it on the ground. That kills them worse than anything. Take them to jail, then they're mad at you. But, you know, you've done them a favor. I didn't take them to jail. Those groups of kids who are out there drinking, race-wise, what do they tend to be? White. <laughs> we were talking to a judge a couple of days ago, um, and she was talking about how, um, you know, oftentimes in Greenville, you have two groups of kids drinking. One of them's a white group of kids, one of them's a black group of kids. And the white kids do get talked to and get their drinks poured out and they get sent home. And the black kids often get hauled in. Well, no. so let's put this in perspective. I've got a group of white kids is up here that's drinking. You make sure somebody's going to drive them, that's driving, that's not drinking. You just don't let them go. But you build that rapport. Now, let's go over to Strange Park. You remember Strange Park? It's a park near downtown. You go down there and you got they got lookouts on the corners and they're shooting dice in the, in the bottom. So we would all storm in there and jump out on them. And do we haul them to jail? Yeah, because you're grabbing them as they go because they're all gambling and drinking and everything else. But they're running and they're all black. Yeah, this is really hard to listen to. When we're talking about presumptions of guilt and innocence, whether it's Richards or Ruth's or an entire race, I think it's important to look at how the people in charge operate. I mean, would you be able to get that rapport, though, if you said, hey, guys, like, I can haul you in right now, but let's talk about it, and, you know, here's my card. And I, yes, I could. That's how I built CIs. That's how I solved what I solved. I told you, I didn't have a crystal ball. No crystal ball. No physical evidence either. Just that gut feeling. Do you think there's a way it could have been solved within a year or two? Um, I probably, had it been our case. He tells us he never would have left Richard alone, 
he would have always kept an eye on him. He would have saw me every day until something happened. So if I, he was my main man and I was looking at I would have stayed on to him like butter on rice or whatever you want to call it, biscuit on a gra- gravy on a biscuit, whatever. I mean, look, we all rely on gut feelings. Lots of times they're right, or at least compelling. Like some of those stories about Richard I'd heard from friends and family. But private citizens are allowed to go on gut. I'm not sure about investigators. I spent more than two hours with Mackenzie. Toward the end, I was so overwhelmed and frazzled. And then my phone started buzzing. It was my dad. Keeps blowing up. Um, Charlotte went into cardiac arrest last night. She's still alive in ICU on a ventilator. He says, let's talk when you have a chance. I'll just let him know. Next time on Witnessed, Devil in the Ditch. You look for evidence and then try to find the person. You don't find the person and then look for the evidence. Where did the evidence lead? What you ended up having was basically three different investigative files. I have a lot of unanswered questions myself. I felt like it was solvable. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Witnessed is a production of Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment. Devil in the Ditch was reported and hosted by me, Larison Campbell. Lindsay Kilbride is the senior producer, and Sheba Joseph is the associate producer. The story editor is Sean Flynn. Studio recording by Ewan Lai Tremuen and Sheba Joseph. Sound design, mixing, and original music by Garrett Tiedemann. Additional music by APM and Blue Dot Sessions. Additional field recording by Johnny Kaufman and Ambriel Crutchfeld. Fact-checking by Ben Kalin. Special thanks to Emily Martinez and our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Aliyah Papes, Destiny Dingle, Ashley Warren, and Sabina Mara. The executive producers at Campside Media are Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, Adam Hoff, and Matt Scher. Mm-hmm.